This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Laura Logan, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Uh, nice touch on the name. <laughs> I like it. Good, Laura. I mean, you're from South Africa. You should know what I'm yeah, saying. <laughs> you are from Durban. Yeah, I'm a Durban girl. That's why my accent is so terrible when I speak Afrikaans. Uh, you, as I said earlier to you, you sound a whole lot better than Charlize. And Elon. Elon. Have <laughs> you, I mean, Elon's accent is ridiculous. You know, look, Elon is in another realm, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. His child has, what's his name? What's the name of the child? No, I, nobody I can know. say it. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd be stupid to try. When last were you here? Okay. So I used to come, you know, every year. And mm. then I had uh, children and that made it really expensive because now it's five tickets instead of one. Mm. And um, also then COVID hit, right? And uh, that changed everything. And actually, um, my father died during COVID and I so wasn't sorry. able to to bury him. So that's a that's a thing I got to get over. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, you know, it's like I could go home now, I think. I don't even know. But, um, uh, you know, that I, I'm a little nervous about being stuck on the other side of the world and not being able to get back to my children. You, you know, say home. Um, oh, yeah, home. Is South Africa home still, is it, is it still home for you? Always. Always, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, uh, what do the Africans say? I remember when I covered Mobutu Sesi Seko and the end of his life. Do you remember after the fall of Mobutu, he asked uh, to be able to be allowed to go home to his village. He said uh, that he could feel the earth calling him back, um, which is where I first learned about that. You know, that as you get older, uh, the earth calls you um, back to your home. And I, I feel that. But I'm also very... Um, I mean, I love South Africa. It's a very big part of who I am. So um, I've never separated from that, you know? I've carried that with me everywhere. Um, I feel like I was forged in the fires uh, of KwaZulu and, um, and our culture and our history and our everything in South Africa. And what I learned there is what prepared me for the world, you know? So um, I, I wouldn't even consider turning my back on that, not for a second. My sister was nervous about coming here because she was like, why would I go to Texas? You know, America has this real problem. They've, uh, they've just erased the middle of the country, right? They've allowed it to be reduced to two words, flyover country. And the great thing about being here is that you, I keep discovering, wow, I go to like Kansas City and I, I feel like I, I could be in Los Angeles or New York, you know, and it doesn't fit the narrative at all. And you wonder, you start, it gets you thinking, you're like, why did you allow yourselves to be disregarded and patronized and dismissed like mm -hmm. this, you know, to be completely written out um, of any sort of valid history of this country? And we have this very distorted view from the outside that America is only made up of New York and uh, L.A., right? New York, Washington, East Coast, West Coast, and that anything in between 
is worthless. And it's not true. Trump knew that. Yes, he did. Um, he knew that very well, which is kind of interesting because, you know, the media spent a lot of time trying to paint Trump as if he was this spoiled rich kid who was pretending to be the working class guy. Mm. Um, and then at the same time, uh, really targeting him to hide the fact that the people voting for him were always the real target. You know, this idea that the people could choose their own leader and exercise their rights and um, that they, when the Constitution says this is a government of the people, for the people and mm. by the people, that this is a nice idea for the movies. This is something that we sell you know, abroad as being part of the red, white, and blue, but it's not actually something we mean. No, 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 no. You you guys are really too stupid. Don't you know you're too stupid to choose your own leader? You're too ignorant. You're too fat. You're too, you yeah. know, prejudiced. You're too this. You're too that. Oh, wait a minute. Do you remember the basket of deplorables from yes. Hillary Clinton 2016? Oh, yeah, that's right. So, so that wasn't <laughs> Trump's basket. That was our basket. That was the people's basket. When I say our, I don't mean the right. I don't mean the Republicans. I mean, you know, uh, we as as people and as human beings, um, that was for us. If you're considering going outside of the lanes that we have designed for you, thinking on your own, making your own decisions, exercising your rights. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, we never meant any of that. That was, mm. a, that was just a a big lie. That's an illusion you've been living under all these years. One of the reasons why I'm chatting to you, other than the fact that you're South African formerly, but um, is that you're one of the few uh, journalists who still can, I think, proudly have that label because journalism is in the toilet. It's in the toilet, but you know what? This is the thing. It's, um, it's really important to me, I think, that uh, people understand uh, and see the trap that's being laid for all of us, right? So you corrupt the institutions, and we are complicit in that, say, as journalists, for example. We are complicit in the corruption of the media. But what they want us to do is to lose our faith in the institution of journalism itself, right? In the very idea of, you know, honest, independent reporting. I mean, I will never forget as a young journalist, gosh, I think I was 17 years old. I was in Durban. I went to my first political event. I was working at, at the Daily News or the Sunday Tribune, I can't remember. And um, it was a, it was some event uh, with the, the National Party. And um, I, I think uh, I, it was the president who spoke. And I was about to start applauding and I looked around me and, you know, and one of the journalists was like, no, 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 no. And I, I, I saw that everyone, all the other journalists and cameramen and sound men, black and white, right? Nobody was applauding. And that was part of our independence as journalists. You didn't go and cheer. You weren't there as part of the rally. You weren't there as an activist. You know, you were there as a journalist. And so it's a, it's this tiny little thing, you know? And um, of course, it's not absolute, but it was really interesting to me. That was the culture of journalism that I was raised in in South Africa. And that was always very important to me. I remember when I lived in London years later, 
and you would have, you know, the Sun newspaper would come out and back a candidate in the election and mm. say, you know, the Sun is behind, you know, Tony Blair or whatever. I was like, how weird is that? <laughs> Why is a newspaper choosing a political candidate? And then you had, you know, the Daily Mail, which was so obviously, uh, you know, on the right. Um, but nobody said, oh, but the Independent and the Guardian and all of those, they're mm. on the left. You know, what they said is, these are the righteous papers, right? This is the righteous place and space to occupy. And if you were on the right, mm, wow, that wasn't so good. You know, first of all, it wasn't cool. It wasn't Hollywood. It wasn't uh, tolerant. It mm. was, wasn't just. It was, you know, and I remember having this argument with my father in South Africa once. I don't, I was working at Reuters news agency at the time in Johannesburg. You know, it was during the whole uh, transition uh, to Mandela after the unbanning of the ANC and after his release from prison and all of that. And uh, in the lead up to the first uh, election, right, the first free election. And uh, I don't remember what it was that was going on with the AVF, the Afghan Folk Front and the Avia Beer and all of that at the time. But I remember saying something to my dad and he challenged me and he said, well, I thought I thought being tolerant meant you have to tolerate everyone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, my being young and, of course, knowing everything, right? Because when you're young, you know everything. As my mother used to say, you're so young and you know everything. It must be wonderful. I'm so old and yet I know nothing. <laughs> and, you know, that was when she was in a good mood. In a bad mood, she'd say, who died and made you the oracle and the miracle? So, so I, I just remember uh, telling my dad with absolute conviction, well, you don't have to tolerate this because these people are racist and racism is basically a war crime, right? There is no greater sin than racism and prejudice. And that was, you know, that was my guiding fundamental core um, as a, uh, all my life. I couldn't stand injustice and racism and injustice went hand in hand to me. But I learned, I mean, what greater example is there than Nelson Mandela, right? To really learn and to challenge those narratives. And, and what I did is even though I had that, you know, I had that blindness, um, at the same time, I never stopped listening. I never closed my heart and I never closed my mind. So we can't, we can't pretend that we're free of prejudice. We can't pretend we have no bias. That's just a lie. We can't pretend that journalism is objective and we make no subjective decisions and so on and so on. None of that is true. We make subjective decisions every moment of every day. And everything we do about our work, the stories we choose, the people we put in them, what parts of the story we emphasize, where we put it, and so on, all of these are subjective decisions. But what I learned is that the process you know, of forcing yourself, um, actually not so much forcing yourself, but just making sure that you live up to the standards. You do talk to both sides. You do consider both sides. You do uh, keep digging until you find the truth. You do challenge the people you like and agree with, you know, while you also challenge the people that you don't like. You do remind yourself make yourself aware of your of your bias. My boss at 60 Minutes, um, said to me once, uh, it was after um, I left the show and I did a podcast and I, I was asked a question about the bias in the media. And honestly, I didn't even think it was uh, anything, my answer. But um, 
it was so, but it went viral. It, and it, it, it trended for days on Twitter globally, you know, without any input, right? No money, no, no backing whatsoever. And um, that was amazing to me because all I did was just acknowledge the fact that most journalists are liberal or Democrat or on the left. And that to me was just, you know, not even newsworthy, right? It was such a simple, basic fact. And when that made such big news, mm. my boss wrote to me and he said, um, and uh, he was the executive producer of 60 Minutes, right? Only the second executive producer of the top news magazine show in the world um, in 40 years. And he said to me, you know, my my greatest achievement running that show was making us aware of our own bias. And mm. it was underappreciated by everyone except the audience. And, you know, the other thing he taught me, I mean, he taught me many things, um, but one really important thing that I'm reminded of every single day, he said, never underestimate the audience. And I think that that is the root of the corruption in the media uh, today, that because we had this sort of profound sense that we were righteous and we were right, and the audience and the people out there were too stupid to recognize that or to know any better. Mm. That is the fertile ground that they used to sh just tear apart everything good about the media. And once you start to corrupt people, you know, some people buy in because of ideology. Some people buy in because of laziness, weakness, fear, corruption, you know, and um, others are paid. Others are political operatives. And then you start to add layers to that of these ideologues and activists and operatives that they're churning out of the colleges instead of, um, you know, teaching people, sorry, my, my dog, uh, instead of teaching people their craft, right? All they're doing is training activists and training political operatives. That's what they do. And um, and so now, you know, the older journalists in the newsroom at the New York Times who've been around a long time and maybe, you know, um, weren't aware so much of their own bias and bought into some of the narrative and whatever, those journalists, boy, they speak up today, they're finished, right? Mm. Because uh, now this, there's a militancy to um, these activists and the activism of today that, um, that tells you what it's really about. It's not really about journalism. It's not really about the First Amendment. It's not about freedom of information. It's not about um, educating yourself and doing the right thing. It's about information warfare. In a, you know, that is a very important part of a much bigger political strategy and um, failure to see that at this point and to recognize that doesn't unfortunately spare you of the consequences. Yeah. Right? You've, um, speaking of information warfare, you've had your fair share and Wikipedia has got the most brilliant overview of you. They frame you like you're the worst person ever, which means that it's all the more reason. It's all the more reason to, to, uh, to, to see what you're up to. Uh, <laughs> um, I haven't been on there, you know, in the beginning, of course, it bothered me. And I, I you mm. know, someone would tell me, oh, they said this about you on Wikipedia. And I would think, how can I get it changed? And how can I get it corrected? Uh, because that's not true. And that's yeah. not true. That's not true. And now, you know, it's just funny to me. I couldn't care less. Yeah, I, that's the, that's the yeah. right attitude. 
Uh, well, and the thing is, it's those those attacks and mm. those false narratives are a roadmap to everything they fear. Yes. You know, so I at this point, I welcome the attacks. I mean, it's unfortunate that there are always casualties of war. You're going to have some people you like and care about who mm. read that and they're not going to and they're going to believe it. And <laughs> um, and some of them you might even love. Right. Mm. But, um, you know, that's just uh, that's just part of the cost of doing business these days. And there's nothing that I can do to change that. I'm always reminded, you know, my mother was a wise woman. She was uh, I lost her a long time ago. And it's amazing because um, she's still with me every moment of every day and guides me through every difficulty in my life because she was um she just could see, you know, she could see everything in the same moment and she could share that. And what she uh, would, you know, she would share that old Irish prayer, right? That a lot of people know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And that, you know, Wikipedia and all these attacks, they fit firmly into the category of the things uh, that I cannot change. Mm. Um, I do what I can to expose the tactics because I think it's helpful for other people um, who, you know, who aren't as <laughs> used to being uh, savaged as I am. It's been more than a decade now, you know, I mean, more than yeah. 10 years. So uh, either you're going to it's going to get the better of you or you're going to get the better of it. And the reality for me is that the attacks just at this point, they just elevate um, everything that I'm saying. They prove me right time and time again. And as it turns out, I mean, speaking of being proved right, one of your, <laughs> I've got it here <laughs> next to me here, one of your interesting um, information wars, which funnily enough has turned out to be in your favor in terms of what you said. And that was... Um, Fauci? Uh, Is that where you're going? Uh, no, I was going. I was actually going with the Taliban because the Taliban have taken uh -huh. over, mm -hmm. and, and that, that was that was your criticism, I think, of Obama. Yeah, it was my criticism of Obama, and you know, this is what what bothers me mm. about Afghanistan. And there's a thousand things that bother me about Afghanistan, but um, I don't know why people have such a hard time just doing a simple, you know, a search back, right? It's not, I'm not asking that people go back centuries of history. We literally are just talking about the last 10, 15, 20 years. We do not remember the president before the last one because Obama is the one who started negotiating with the Taliban without the Afghan government, right? Obama is the one who is looking for the exits. How do I know that? Not because I'm crazy, not because I'm a Republican, not because I'm the darling of the far right, whatever that is these days, not because I don't like the Democratic Party. No, it's because I was there. I was there and I talked to Obama. I interviewed Obama. I interviewed his people. I was on the ground in Afghanistan reporting on their policies. And I haven't forgotten I mean, you know, that's what mm. beat reporting, that's the value of beat reporting. So it's frustrating to me and also kind of pathetic that uh, that people can't even go that far back. And then, you know, you see the same thing playing out with Ukraine, 
right? It's exactly the same thing. You can't go back to 2013 to 2014. You can't see that everyone from BBC to CBS to Al Jazeera was reporting on the Nazis of Ukraine, who they now want you to pretend you're, oh, we, the United States, are not funding Nazis in Ukraine. I mean, it's like, uh, and, and I'm uh, some conspiracy theorist because I'm pointing out a simple fact of history right? That you don't even have to look very far to find. Because the one thing there's no shortage of on Google is, uh, you know, all of the uh, reporting uh, from what they consider their constituency. Mm. Although these days, you know, they're, they're suppressing um, even, you know, what they need to suppress within that. Um, if I could have one wish, my one wish used to be that I could speak every language in the world. At the same time, I just had a chip in my brain um, because I hated not being able to communicate, you know, personally with people and have to go through a translator and lose all of that nuance and feeling. But my wish today would be uh, that Google, Twitter, DuckDuckGo, you know, all of these people um, who have deceived us into... Um, becoming completely dependent and reliant on technology. They're worse than the tobacco industry that sold us cigarettes while knowing that, you know, nicotine was giving you cancer, right? They're much, much, much worse than that. Mm. I mean, and they're only beginning to show their colors. We have the dark heart um, of these companies uh, is a future that I'm happy to die fighting uh, for to stop that from ever becoming reality. Well, and then you mentioned Fauci, and that was the other one, which I thought was fantastic, actually. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why there was... Well, I suppose I get it, but, I mean, it's just typically victimhood mentality. You know, people want to be outraged by something. Uh, for those who don't know, what, what, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, so I was on a, um, a Fox News show, and, you know, I was... I was all over um, Fox News because I, I had good relationships with all of the shows that the audience wanted uh, to hear what I had to say. And even though I wasn't hired by Fox and I wasn't paid by Fox News, I was paid to do my show on Fox Nation, which is still on there, by the way. Um, and uh, and so I was, you know, I was uh, I had a big presence. And I knew <laughs> that my days were numbered. You know, Tucker Carlson, who's who's amazing. If there's anyone in your audience that doesn't follow him and watch uh, his show, you really should, uh, because he's he's probably one of the most well. He's definitely one of the most important voices in the world. Arguably, the most important in America. Um, and um, Tucker Carlson, um, they tried to silence him. And when I went up and did an interview with him, I said to, I was chatting to him in the studio and I said, how are you still, you know, on air? How have they not managed to get rid of you yet? And he looked at me and laughed and said, oh, you know, it's only a matter of time. And uh, that really freed me because I realized with me, it was only a matter of time too. my time came a lot sooner <laughs> than, than, you know, than his, he's still going, but um, it Really what happened is I was asked to comment on Dr. Fauci uh, taking the position that if anyone uh, criticized him, 
they were criticizing science since he is mm. science. He said this to Margaret Brennan from CBS on a Sunday program, and he said this to a bunch of other people. And so um, they were doing a segment on this. And my response was, you know, when I talk to people, um, I talk to a lot of people about this, obviously, because COVID affected so many people. I said, what they tell me is they, they don't see Fauci as science. They see him much more as uh, Dr. Mengele, Dr. Joseph Mengele, the Nazi doctor, than science. And that is absolutely true. I hear that all the time. In fact, what many doctors have said to me and intelligence people and bioweapon specialists um, and uh, did I lose you there? Yeah. Yeah, you're back. You're back. What many intelligence people and bioweapon specialists and others have said to me, and um, and nurses and healthcare professionals, is that basically Fauci will be known as the greatest mass killer in history once yeah. we get, um, you know, the whole truth, and once we get to the other side of this, if we make it to the other side of this. So, um, you know, I thought that was kind of tame. Also, I was doing some other work looking into Fauci and the Nazis and the history here. And I don't think a lot of people really um, understand uh, what happened after World War II and how many Nazis um, and SS leaders and some of the very worst people in Nazi Germany were brought to the US by the CIA. They were given citizenship um, for life and they were brought into the most uh, strategic and important institutions in this country, you know. Not, but it wasn't just NASA where the Nazi scientists came. I mean, it was um, it was into the intelligence agencies. It was into Fort Detrick, where the programs of Joseph Mengele that um, that triggered people, you know. So I'm not allowed to speak about it. Those programs, some of them, were continued at Fort Detrick in the United States of America by American intelligence agencies, right? Working with Nazi scientists and doctors. Yeah, nothing's and, changed. Yeah, and and so um, I am still investigating. Mm. This is probably going to get me killed, but I, I, you know, and looking into what exactly is the nature of all of those ties and relationships and how, if at all, does it relate to Anthony Fauci? I can't talk about what I have uh, learned there yet, um, but I, uh, but I, I can tell you that when I, um, when I say these things, they don't come out of nowhere. And uh, that, yeah, sure, absolutely. Say, that's precisely why they came mm. after, me. because within um, within a week of my saying that on television, what happened mm. is that the head of the EU came out and said that it was time to talk about forced vaccine mandates in the EU. And mm. if they had instituted that, what would have had to happen for that to be legal? They would have had to get rid of the Nuremberg Code. And so what happened is, I didn't know it at the time, but I was actually getting ahead of where their operations were going because they wanted vaccine mandates everywhere. And they would love to get rid of the Nuremberg Code. They would have to get rid of the Nuremberg Code. So they wanted to have that conversation and have it free of the association with Mengele. And I, without even having any idea about any of that, I got ahead of the narrative so that when they moved to do that, mm. they proved me right yet again. 
And, uh, you know, you, you wonder if it's the hand of God guiding you in those situations, because that was impossible for me to know. Well, what's really funny is that the CIA and the U.S. government are very closely involved with the current Ukrainian neo-Nazis. Yeah. I mean, even I mean, not- I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say, but your president is very, very close. President Brandon. <laughs> yes, and his son. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, look. Uh, wow, it is such an indictment on uh, on our leaders and where we are today that uh, we would even try to hide that. You know, I love how NATO tweets out a photograph of a Ukrainian soldier and. Uh, with the black sun mm. of the occult, which was a Nazi SS symbol. And every time I say that, they go nuts again, you know, which tells you what? It tells you to look closer, right? It tells you pay attention. Mm. What is the history of Ukraine and the SS? What is the history of Ukraine and the Nazis? What is the history of the CIA and Ukraine's Nazis? Alan Dulles, when he was head of the CIA, protected the Nazis of Ukraine from the Nuremberg trials. And what's most extraordinary is that, you know, you say anything, Putin says, uh, you know, that he's uh, going to rid Ukraine of its Nazis. And everybody says, oh, how can he say that? You know, and they talk mm. about the massacre of hundreds of thousands of Jews in the Holocaust. And uh, and they don't talk about the fact that Ukraine's Nazis were involved in those murders mm. and in those killings. I mean, that it wasn't all carried out by Germans. I mean, they don't talk about the fact that Western yes. Ukraine was invaded, became a headquarters of the SS. Yeah. I mean, so we want this very selective reading of history. And if you happen to ask questions or you happen to raise these issues, then, you know, they slap the conspiracy theory label on you and they hope that you're going to be, you know, sort of intimidated and bullied mm. into silence and, and that fear is going to take over and govern your whole yeah. existence. You know what's so ridiculous, though, is... I, I've come to enjoy the term conspiracy theory because when you realize that the CIA themselves weaponized Inven- it, yeah. yeah, they, yeah, they, they weaponized the term conspiracy yeah. theorist. <laughs> so, so when people, when? We, I'm sorry, do you remember when it was uh, just after JFK's assassination? I think it had to do with um, the Warren JFK Commission. Yeah, the yeah the the Warren Commission report. They didn't want anybody looking too closely at the assassination. Correct. Yes. You know, I mean, you can't make it up, right? No, exactly. You start to wonder, what what if I believe that's actually been true? Mm. Yes. You know? I mean, um, I I had no idea in South Africa all those years what an important force the Soros people and the Open Society Foundation were in South Africa, how much of a hand they had in what was happening there. And look at them today. You know, um, Mandela's legacy, they couldn't, it's got, I mean, it's like nothing could be further removed from who they are and what they're doing. Well, I mean, all you have to do uh, if you really wanted to trigger the media all over again is just say that Darwin was funded by the Rothschilds. You know, that one, uh, that one took me by surprise. <laughs> I realized I was going to go so nuts over that. You know, that was another one of those things that without any, 
I mean, without any great, you know, purpose or, you know, ne you know, nefarious intent or anything like that. I was trying, I was looking into 10 Downing Street and uh, Karl Marx and the origins of Marxist doctrine and socialism and so on and so on. You know, when I discovered that Marx was hired um, as well by the Rothschilds to create a system of social control, which, you know, starts to... Uh, really helps you understand that anytime you see the word social, it's about controlling you, right? That's what it's really about. And of course, the, the nexus with the Dutch East India uh, Tea Company was fascinating to me because growing up in South Africa, what did we learn about, right? Jan van Riebeck and the Dutch East India Tea Company. And, uh, you know, coming coming to South Africa and, you know, and needing the spices on the on the spice route and the trade routes and the importance of all of that. So this was a history that really resonated with me. I never, um, I never even, you know, really thought about it. Um, it wasn't, it's not like I'm working on some great big uh, reveal Darwinism project. You know what I mean? Um, I was just very interested to, to learn and to see how many significant narratives came out of 10 Downing Street and came out of the Rothschilds and uh, the, the people that they hired. And it, it is, of course, has echoes of the think tanks of today, which more and more and more I'm, I'm starting to see are just almost like shell companies and havens for foreign spies and information warfare. Um, and I say that with great respect for the genuine you know, people in those institutions, but I, they, they probably are outnumbered, uh, you know, mm. a million to one. Um, and so it was just, you know, um, it wasn't even a big deal for me because it was just a historic fact uh, yeah. that Darwin died by Rothschild. Of course, since then, you know, um, I, I, I mean, I had, I had people saying to me, like, uh, you know, I can't believe, I, mean, I can't believe how upset people got over that. Um, and that really surprised me. And then I realized, of course, looking at it, that it goes to the heart of whether you believe in creationism and God. Why is it that they don't want people to know that? Why does that, that doesn't mean that Darwin was wrong. That, does, that doesn't automatically follow. All I said was that Darwin was hired by the Rothschild, um, you know, to write his thesis, right? Yeah. So why does that automatically invalidate uh, Darwin? Well, I mean, on the surface, it doesn't, which just tells you, since that's what they automatically jump to, it tells you, oh, wait a minute. Now I am really interested in uh, in this. And uh, let me see what it is they mm. fear here. Why do they fear that so much? Because you, one thing that I know that experience has taught me, right, they don't bother to attack you when uh, you're wrong. They don't bother when it's not important to them. That's why I say the attacks are a roadmap to their weaknesses and their fears. So they really point you in the right direction. Now, of course, they can throw up a, you know, a false flag attack to kind of prove you wrong. But that, you know, but over time, it doesn't matter because over time, that strategy is a bedrock, mm -hmm. right, of their operations. And so inevitably, you're still going to see the roadmap of what they fear. And when I look at that, I, I tell you, I, I met someone who I am I'm dying to have more time with. But this person's job 
for many years was to infiltrate what you call the global elites. What I would say to you, I have, uh, I no longer use that term for the most part because this person taught me that they're not elite, they're a cult. Mm, That's what yeah, they yeah. are. That's they're a good term. A, they're a global cult. Mm. And why does that matter so much? Because it's accurate. It's about who they really are and what they really want, where they're taking us. They're not taking us to a world, you know, um, of elites, right? They're taking us into the dark heart of a cult where, what do you have? You have people whose one single most important defining objective is to eliminate and eradicate God. Mm. And this is, and I'm telling you, this is what this person who spent years, he had to read. Apparently they have all this, they have all this works and teachings and literature and, and so on and so on. I mean, he spent two and a half years just studying everything from the rituals to the traditions, to the ideology and so on and so on and so on in order to be able to successfully infiltrate them at the UN level. Right. I can't tell you which faction he was part of. I don't want to give too much away. But because um, one of the things I asked him is I said, I don't I get it, but I don't get it. The children, you just mm -hmm. you got to. I still have I have such a problem with this. You got to explain this one to me. And he said, um, well, first of all, you're looking at it the wrong way. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, they don't define children the way you do. They don't define the world the way you do. The choices that you face are not their choices, right? They have a, they look at it completely differently. And uh, and I said, well, okay, so how do they look at it? And he said, for them, everything is defined by their one fundamental, all-consuming purpose. I said, which is what? He said, to defeat God, right? Because this is the moment, I mean, for them, it's about uh, the real God, the true gods are them and Satan, yeah. they're, mm. right? And so he said, children, right. are, children are the closest thing on earth to God because mm. we are created in the image of God. And as you know, from the moment we're created, we haven't had time to, uh, to you know, to be corrupted and to stray. So for them, the younger you are, the closer you are to God, the more pain they can inflict on God. So the more you can make a baby or a small child suffer, the greater your victory over God. And that is the only consideration for them. Outside of that doesn't exist. It's psychopathic. Ha! Huh. Yeah. It's psychopathic. It really is. And you know, what's even, uh, what's just as psychopathic is that people um, who've never, uh, you know, who know nothing about this, just want to believe what they read at the mm. New York Times or what they see on CNN and still then turn around and say, you're crazy. No, I am exactly the same mm. as I have always been. I am uh you know, I'm the same journalist. I have. Didn't Elon Musk just put out a um, a tweet with a with a with an image that had him standing um, on the left 
right? You had the center and it had him to the left of center. And then it had like a, a leftist and then had a person on the right. And it showed uh, in the next stage, the person on the left was like way off here. And, you know, and it's three levels and he doesn't move. That's where I am. I haven't moved. I believe in the same things that I always believed in. I believe that I, I'm, I'm, I hate racism. Right. And I don't believe in that. I don't believe in prejudice. I don't uh, believe in judging people by the color of their skin and so on and so on. That hasn't changed. I do believe in tolerance. My dad really got to me when he said that to me. And I spent years thinking about it and realized um, that it wasn't enough just to have an open heart and an open mind and to listen, um, that you really had to live up to your principles, you know, you mm. and and so I spent much of my life, uh, you know, doing that, uh, narrowing that gap between my principles and my behavior and my beliefs, right? And um, until I realized um, that the only place that I really want to live is um, is standing up and by and with those principles. Otherwise, it's just meaningless. Um, what happened in Benghazi? In Benghazi or what happened with my story? Yes. You were, uh, so apparently you were sexually harassed. Oh, they're mixing up Benghazi and Egypt. I beg your pardon, Egypt, not Benghazi. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, okay, so this is one of those things <laughs> that when the first time it was done to me by Joe Hagan at New York uh, Magazine, I was... Um, Wow, it was a, uh, it was painful, and really uh, distressing, um, because and I was angry. You know, I was super angry about it, and yeah. um, for, you know, for a good number of years, um, the only thing that I wished would happen would be that Joe Hagen, the writer who wrote that I was groped in Egypt, would be uh, subjected to what I was subjected to. I wanted him to try gang rape and sodomy and uh, being beaten by a mob almost death and then see if he still described it as being groped Yeah. when he came out of it, right? Um, it was my sincere wish for Christmas, birthdays, and every other holiday that Joe Hagen uh, would experience everything that I experienced. Mm. I got a really work hard to be the better person <laughs> and say that I don't wish that on him now. Yeah. Part of me still does. However, um, I wanted to, I don't want him to be alone. I want him to be joined, uh, by, I think his name is Jeremy Peters, but see, isn't that funny? I can't even quite remember his name, um, because he's that unimportant, uh, to me, but, um, and that's how far I've traveled. Um, Jeremy Peters, if his name, if that is the right name, is the New York Times reporter who did the same thing to me in in a more recent hit piece where he minimized the attack on me in Egypt. And um, uh, what I really love about what they did is that they have to minimize um, a real attack that almost killed me in order to justify their own attack. And I think that's very obvious to anybody 
mm-hmm. you know, with half a brain, right? Uh, who's got an open mind and is looking at this. And it says so much about who and what they are and also about the places where they work and all of the people who allowed that to happen and who are okay with that narrative and uh, yeah. the editor, you know, and all of the other people involved in it. I, I think that there is, is sort of no clearer example to people because they know that I was surrounded by a mob of uh, 200 to 300 men in Tahrir Square in Egypt. They know that I was gang raped and sodomized and beaten almost to death and that I almost died. I have, I don't know, 20,000 letters still in a box that are from people all over the world who wrote to me at the time. It was a story on 60 Minutes. I've spoken about it publicly. Mm. I have, uh, I've, you know, spent a lot of time with victims of sexual assault and rape. Um, It's been written about. I mean, everybody, you know, millions of people know what happened to me. Obama himself called me to uh, see if I was okay. Hillary wrote to me personally. You know, I have the letter, right? I have uh, the witnesses. My sister and my husband were there when Obama was president at the time and the White House called. You know, so not, first of all, none of these things were difficult to verify. Um, and so that tells the audience that these people are not really journalists. They're political operatives more than journalists. Mm-hmm. So I don't need to say it. Number two, um, nobody thinks that that's okay. No decent person thinks mm-hmm. that that's okay. And and people can see it for what it is. So um, so while I still wish, I wish a good uh, gang rape beating, mob beating and uh, sodomy on both of those reporters, um, I think they deserve that. I also don't really care anymore. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, what shows, actually what's funny about it is it just reaffirms the fact that they regard what I'm saying as a real threat, right? It just shows you mm. that you're over the target because yes. if you weren't, they wouldn't bother. You know, and isn't that funny that if you follow the facts and you and you just don't worry about being um, celebrated by The New York Times, because who wants to be celebrated by a paper that's been wrong about every major story for the last five, six years? And goodness knows how many stories and years before that. But I'm just talking about the Russia collusion narrative under Biden laptop. I mean, everything you can imagine on COVID. I'm sorry, but I, do I need an endorsement from the newspaper that is pretending that people who are dying from these vaccines and being injured uh, from them are don't exist? That's not what I, why I became a journalist. You're going to uh, push the lies and all the propaganda and nonsense coming out of Ukraine, all these fake stories about you know war stories and everything else. But you don't care about the 12, 13, 14,000 people in eastern Ukraine who've been murdered. You care about these women and children, but not those women and children. It's like, I don't need your endorsement. You know, honestly, you can keep it. Shove it right where the sun don't shine, because that's what it's worth. Did you think you were going to get out um, of, of that Egypt situation? I did not. No, I did not. Um I was pretty uh, close to dead um, by the time that I uh, really that I uh, realized I had a chance. In fact, that moment I would define as being 
the moment I experienced real, pure, unadulterated fear. Fear in its most complete form with no uh, mitigating, you know, presence. Um, that was when I was so close to death and I had been raped so many times and I had been sodomized so many times by so many men and I had been beaten and I could hardly breathe and uh, I was tired. All the adrenaline had left my body. The hope, um, I knew I was dying and um, I knew being a, a person who always tries to be very realistic and honest with myself. Um, I had the ability to look at my situation and realize that there was nothing that I, on my own, could do. It was over. And I remember thinking, wow, this is um, filthy, just really a filthy, meaningless death. You know, um, I felt, uh, I, I mean, I was naked, my body was torn apart, and um, you know, it's really, uh, if you can imagine the dirtiest street that you've ever been on, um, I was part of the dirt, and I knew it. And that's not for people to feel sorry for me, that's the reality of what happens to you when you die like that, like a piece of trash. And um, there was nothing redeeming in it. There was nothing noble in it. There was no uh, purpose or meaning of any kind. Um, it was just a, a, a horrible, squalid, filthy, uh, really ugly, worthless death. And um, I remember just, um, being slightly surprised because <laughs> I somehow never thought I was going to go that way, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I, you know, what's, what's funny is Jer Jeremy, you made me realize something I've never actually spoken out loud. That's very important to me about this. Um, it was hard for me to believe that it was happening because I had spent so many years in the Middle East and in Islamic countries and in places where it's very difficult for women, you know, you live by a different set of rules to the local women. So the people around you inevitably 24 hours a day are not women. Most of the time they're men. And, uh, some of these people are the most important fundamental relationships of all my life. You know, they are part of the fabric of who I am. I love them with every part of my body. And um, I was able to do so much and see so much and understand and learn because of them, but also because of many other um, men in Islamic countries and in the Middle East. And I had never been treated that way. There was always a redeeming quality um, to you know the things that I didn't like because I I never pretended I liked burkas I never pretended that I believed in um, many of the tenets of Islam when it comes to women and the way women are treated 
And I would still argue today with anyone who wants to tell you, you don't understand the prophet's mother was a businesswoman and blah, blah, blah. I just say to them, okay, show, show me the Islamic country where you want your daughter to grow up because she's going to have a better life than the one she's going to have in a Western country. You just show me. It's okay. I'm not going to argue with you anymore, you know, about who did what and who's more open and, you know, and whether we're projecting and all that nonsense. Just show me the country. Pick pick the place. can be anywhere. They can be as rich as anything. They don't even have to live like 99% of the people who live there. And they can't do it because it's just a lie. So, you know, I, um, but I can respect and have love and find things of value in all of those places and in the religion and in the people and in the culture without having uh, to want to adopt that as my way of life and my belief. And I was always honest about that with everyone I worked with and everyone I was friends with and the people that I met. You know, I never went to a UN party and pretended to be a tree hugger. You know, it's just not in my nature. It's not what I was born for. So there was in that moment in Egypt, part of me that just couldn't believe that that could happen uh, because I had always, um, I had always seen that redeeming quality. It had always been there. That's what kept me alive. You know, that's what made my time uh, living five years in Iraq and years in Afghanistan. That's what made that time so worthwhile and so meaningful. And in that moment of, you know, just pure evil, it's not there. But, you know, what's great is that um, as I was lying there naked and just absolutely terrified that this, uh, this sudden opportunity that I had to live when... When I was dragged around the square being uh, raped and beaten, I was eventually dragged into a part of the square where um, there was a fence and there were women and children. And basically the mob, uh, you know, ran out of a place to go and it was cornered, you know. So um, it wasn't so much the square is not just the square like we imagine. Right. It's got it's got roads and gutters and fences and all this stuff in it. So I kind of got. Um, dragged and that was lucky because the last time I went down I didn't have the strength to stand up again I, every time I had gone down I fought to get on my feet because I knew I could hear I had a, a security guy with me for a lot of the time until he was torn away from me uh, his name was Ray and Ray kept saying to me get up Lara get up stay on your feet and I knew I knew from all my years in South Africa in the townships, you know, you got, and uh, that if you're in a mob or a crowd, don't, you know, go down because you'll die. And so I kept fighting to get back up on my feet. And the last time I went down, I had, it was impossible. I mean, I was really close to death at that point. So I had no ability to stand up and I was dragged. And it just happened that I got dragged into a part of the square, this, you know, the seething chaos of the mob. They're not, able to direct themselves perfectly and so i just ended up that they were cornered and that was the point at which a lot of um egyptian men i remember seeing young men but there may have been others um jumped up to defend their own women and children and stand between them and the mob and that um that was the moment that i 
literally physically felt the air again. That's how I remember it. Because when you are in the middle of a mob like that and they're all over you, what you don't realize is that there's no air. You can't, on top of everything else that's happened to you and being crushed and them trying, you know, distending all of your joints and everything because they're trying to rip your body to pieces. I mean, on top of all of that, you can't breathe because of the pressure on your rib cage, the pressure on your lungs, and um, and the fact that there's so many of them, there's no oxygen. So one of the first, you know, things I felt was the air on my skin because suddenly there was um, these women and children and Egyptian men and boys between me and the mob. And it was that that moment when I really experienced pure fear because I had accepted that it was over, um, that I was going to die like that. And now I had a chance to live, but the mob was right there. Like, I mean, you know, this, maybe this away from me, you know, arm's length. And I knew that they could just pull me back in at any time. And I, I now, I couldn't bear the thought of living through that again. I couldn't, I couldn't be raped again. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't go back. I couldn't go back into the mob. And so it was almost worse to have it. Um, I could, I was so afraid that that was false hope. I was so afraid that they were just going to reach back and drag me back in. It was, it was more than I could stand because I had to travel so far to accept the end because my daughter was one and my son was two. My daughter, I think she was 10 months old. My daughter was 10 months old. And yep. um, but you're telling, yeah, you, you're telling the story now, so you succeeded. Yeah, yes, and um, it's okay. Uh, honestly, I don't want people to feel bad for me because um, I am totally at peace with everything about my life and who I am and what I have lived mm. through. Um, I really was, uh, I, when I look up, think of Egypt, I don't think about the trauma and the terror most, you know, most of the time. I think about the gift I got to live mm. and my children, today are 12 and 13 and my stepdaughter is 17. Imagine that. And that was um, the weirdest thing that happened to me when I got home because I was rushed straight to the hospital from the airport and I spent a few days in hospital. And um, when I got home, I just remember not knowing how to tell everybody that um, I was really experiencing a feeling of pure joy and disbelief because I could, I mean, there was my child and I just couldn't believe that I was actually alive and that it was real, but I was so grateful. 
So that moment in Egypt for me isn't defined by the trauma. It's defined by the, uh, the grace. It's defined by the grace. And you know what? I want to tell you, one of those people that I was referring to uh, when I talked about the men, uh, the Muslim men in my life, one of them, his name is Faras Ibrahim Maltzamurai in Iraqi. He saw what happened to me. He was in Baghdad, I believe, and he got on a plane. And he didn't even, I didn't even know he was coming. He just came because he knew. And I opened my front door and there he was. And uh, he stayed with me for weeks. And that was, um, that was just one of the best things ever because uh, he knew and understood. And that's the nature of our friendship. You know, if he needs me or I need him, uh, I saved uh, his life once before I was instrumental in saving his life in Iraq. Um, and, you know, you live through these things and you have a love like that. Um, it's with you all your life. Uh, you've completely derailed this entire podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'm going to change it to, I'm going to change it to Dr. Phil, I mean, Dr. Jim. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be Dr. Jim, I'm sorry, but that's not a very good calling card for a doctor. Um, <laughs> I, um, I'm listening to your story and, you know, the hair in my arms are standing up and, and, and God bless you all for, for, you know, telling the story and being, being the great journalist that you are, but I'm trying really hard and you need to help me, uh, Laura, because I've kept you longer than, than you promised. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to segue into a happy, uplifting ending. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Happy ending. This is um this is frequently a problem with my bedtime stories, by the way. <laughs> my my daughter and I just laugh because, you know, some nights it's uh yeah, the war in Afghanistan mm. and you know, and other nights it's something equally horrific. Um okay, happy and uplifting. You know, um I was just how about this? Okay. My brother reached out to me um, because a friend of his, who he was in the army with, who I had not seen since I was 15 years old. I'm 51 now. Okay. Lives in Vegas. This 51? Lives... Yeah. No, no he... ways. You, yeah. don't, you don't look anywhere near that. Unfortunately, I am very much 51 <laughs> and I wish I wasn't. Um, but can you imagine that my brother in South Africa gets a, a call from his friend who he was in the army with in Natal command and, uh, he's living in Vegas and, uh, and wanted me to come and speak at an event for him in South Carolina. So I just saw him and we were laughing, boy, we were doing our best, uh, Afrikaans, mm. uh, come with each other to swear in Afrikaans. I could make your, uh, <laughs> I know if you don't get censored, I could take, I could get your program taken off the airwaves. I tell you with the things I can say in Afrikaans. And uh, we were laughing <laughs> about all of that. And we were laughing about the cows on the beach in South Africa. You know, you just, uh, you can't tell people in America about no. something like that. Have them understand. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and it, it's really funny because 
people looked at me always in my career and were like, oh, sure, Barbie's going to go to war, you know. And they had no idea. I used to go into the bush when I was 14 years old with a pack on, you know, with a friend of mine who was a ranger and sleep by the river and mm. do, uh, you know, take two hours watch, you know, rotating all through the night because you're watching the river for the hippos and the crocs and you're watching the other side for the lions. People think we're nuts when we say this kind of stuff, but it's so normal in South Africa. You know? It is. It is. I was just at the Kruger National Park with my wife uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, it's exactly like that. The, the, I'm jealous. It's, it's beautiful. You should I'm be jealous. jealous. You should be. It should give yeah. you a motivation to come and visit. Oh, my gosh. I want to come and visit so badly. I really do. And, you know, my kids are old enough now that they're actually wanting to go to Africa and wanting to understand South Africa and wanting to be there because now they feel it as part of mm. their heritage and their identity you know it's such a big part of my identity and so they really do um they really do value that part of their uh dna and they want it now you know and they love they want to see their family family is mm. a big um and uh you know i remember ian player remember him he said to me years ago when i asked him what would you say to people outside of this country about why they should come to south africa and he said uh come home this was your home mm. all years ago, right? In terms of humanity. Come put your head on this soil and see what you dream. I never forgot that. I loved it, you know, because he had such a love of KwaZulu. And I am a Tluleka, Mkuzi, and, you know, all of um, those people. I say Tluleka, that's not in the tell. That's in the trans guy. Well, it's still the trans guy to me, but Mkuzi um, and Umfolozi and all those places. Oh, you know, I, I, uh, wow, I miss them. But the other funny part about my brother is another friend of his reached out and he sent him a clip of me talking about Ukraine on one of the shows I did. And he said, uh, you know, hey, but you got to check out this chick. <laughs> He's, uh, she's amazing. She's speaking the truth. My brother said, yeah, I know her. <laughs> it's my sister. <laughs> and he's like, no way, but that's that's not possible. My brother's like, no, really, that's my sister, which I just thought was hilarious. In fr in front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you yeah. see? What do you see? Uh, you know, as a friend of mine um, once said to me, I have two balls, and neither of them are crystal. <laughs> I don't see anything. I'm not a prophet. I mean, come on, you think I'm gonna fall for that? Go predict, no, predicting the future. No, I know what you're asking me. Okay, so having said that I'm not a prophet mm. and I don't know the future, what I, uh, in the immediate future, what there are indications of is that, um, so you have a political strategy that has declared war on the fossil fuel industry. And it's a false war mm. because what do you think you use to make batteries for electric cars and uh, what do you use to make solar panels and what do you use to mine you know the minerals that they're stealing out of the ground in former democratic republic of congo right and um and other parts of africa um where those things that are worth those rare minerals and um precious metals that are worth so much are being basically stolen um what does it take for all of that 
fossil fuels? You know, how come they never tell you what's going to happen to private ownership of cars? They never tell you what's going to happen to the airline industry when they talk about net zero emissions. They never talk about agriculture. And, you know, suddenly, even though cows have been on the earth farting from the beginning of time, now they're poisoning the atmosphere and they've all got to die. All and burping. Cows. <laughs> so they all have to die. It's like, come on. Right. So mm. what, what do I see emerging in our future? It's based on what they say and the policies that they're trying to implement. Read the Green New Deal. Read the, you know, the, the Green New Deal light Biden version of it. Read what they say at the UN. Um, mm. Learn to recognize these terms like, you know, sustainability and social justice. And these are dog whistles for the end of the world as we know it. Right. I mean, they're communist Marxist tactics um, that are bringing us into a world that we have never seen before because of one major fundamental difference, which is technology. So Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, none of these people had the technology and the tools of surveillance, mass surveillance and, uh, that, and, and mass you know, communication systems that we have today. Um, and that allows people, you think about Facebook reaching 2.5 or 3.5 billion people on the planet, right? Um, combine that with Google and Twitter and Instagram and the reach of all of these companies who are really working together and now combined with this, uh, you know, the power of uh, governments like the United States and the UK and so on and so on, because all these people are working together. You know, mm. it's a global cult. So when you combine all of that and you think about their reach, that explains why they're having the same conversations and arguments in Moscow and Timbuktu and, you know, Canada and, uh, you know, and so on and so on and Europe and everywhere else. And so um, what I see is um, very troubling. Um, in the immediate term, everybody's warning about food shortages and famine. And of course, they try the BS of blaming that on Ukraine and all that propaganda. Um, never. Let's just ignore the fact that the first day Biden came into office, he canceled the Keystone Pipeline, which was a signal to everyone in the oil and gas industry that they were going to war. So, um, you know, that put an end to all development and so on and so on. Right. In, in, um, and just crushed all sort of research and development and investment into um, into oil and gas. Um, that is what pushed the price of natural gas up. The price of natural gas going through the roof is what pushed up the price of fertilizer months and months and months before Putin crossed the border into Ukraine. Ghana was already in drastic food shortages, right? And the price of fertilizer the first time I spoke to someone about it had already gone from $250 a ton to around $550, $650. They told me then that it was going to get to $950. And, um, and it is now, I believe. I mean, I, it's certainly um, over $850, $900. So um, what does that mean? It means that the farmers are not getting enough fertilizer to plant, right? At the same time, you have a supply chain crisis because why? Because we were lied to about globalization. They just like technology, they only sold us the positive side, right? They didn't say, oh, uh, guess what? By the way, 
we're, uh, you know, we're going to give all of our manufacturing capabilities to China. So when we need medicine and they don't want to give us any, they can just stop making it. Um, or, oh, yeah, when the, you know, the Chinese are going to uh, start uh, a war on our supply lines. And so they're just not going to send us everything we need. Mm. Um, you know, these are uh, things that are actually happening and nothing is being done to stop it. Nothing. It's barely being talked about and it's definitely not being stopped. But one of the most disturbing um, things that's going on right now that speaks to the future is what's happening uh, with immigration. The, you know, the UN has in, since 2018 recognized migration as a human right. And the Biden administration from day one began implementing their open border policy. So I don't need to be a prophet to see that the open, to read what the Open Society Foundation has on their website, right? I don't have to be a prophet to listen to what they say. They don't believe in the sovereignty of nations. They don't believe in the sovereignty of the United States. They don't believe in uh, the United States being a superpower. They don't believe in superpowers. How do you know that? Well, because they tell you. So when you go to the World Economic Forum's website, watch their video about what their goals are for 2030. One of their stated goals is that the United States will no longer be a superpower. So what do you think that means? When you read about the 30-30 compact, where by 2030, 30% of our land will be public land. Well, it's not really public land, is it? Because we, the public, don't have any say over what happens to it. We can't own it. We can't use it. It's not for us. So it's not really public land. That's a lie. And what is the point here? How are you going to get to 3030? You know, I mean, how much of your land of that is going to be private land that's taken away mm. from private owners? And then the Vermont is a state in the US. They just passed a law to be 50-50 by 2050. Mm. Well, half of the state is they're going to they're going to have to take that land from private owners. So if you want to know what our future looks like, if uh, if these uh, people and policies prevail, it will be uh, no private ownership of land, no private ownership of cars. There won't be any gas stations. It'll all be electric. Mm. Um, we won't all be riding around in Teslas. It will be... Um, there will be a public transportation system that is electric only. You'll have a chip like they're already using in Sweden, I believe it is, for contactless payments. We'll mm. be on a digital currency because they've already bankrupted the dollar. There's nothing to these fiat currencies anyway. But look at the way they're spending billion here, billion there, trillions here. I mean, they have no, there's no monetary policy there whatsoever. The policy is just you know, keep announcing and spending for political reasons because these are not real debts that you're actually intending to pay. So we, the, the, the dollar will be replaced by a digital currency that will go along with our digital identity. And um, um, we will not have anything physical to back it up. We'll be surveilled 24 seven. Um, and the surveillance is really the police, right? That's your law and order. We will police each other because look, that's what cancel culture is, right? We're already policing each other on social media. The brown shirts and the ideologues, the SS um, of this um, 
are already around us today. They are the affinity groups and community groups that are offered as the solution to everything. Don't like the police? Ah, we have the solution. Community policing. What is community policing other than vigilantism? Right? Because look how it's playing out. It plays out where you there's no oversight at child protection services. They can show up at your door in the United States on the basis of three anonymous phone calls. They can show up at your door with a warrant from a judge to take your children away from you, and, and you don't even know anything about it. Mm. So is that community policing, right? Um, look at the network of NGOs that are being used to launder money and proliferate this ideology because they are your local government infrastructure of the world we're heading into. And these global organizations like the World Health Organization, like the World Economic Forum, it's not a conspiracy. They tell you, go and watch the videos and read what they put on their website and listen to them. And then if you really want to know where we're headed, listen to um, a lovely man called Yuval Noah Harari, right? If, who is the definition of psychosis, psychotic, right? Because, and how he's a professor at an Israeli university, I mean, uh, seriously, God help us, right? Because how many minds is he poisoning there? But, you know, this man is completely absent of all forms of conscience as we know it. He literally sits there in interviews with people who, I don't know what you would call them because they're obviously not journalists, and talks about most of humanity having no value, being completely worthless, right? So what is in our future? Well, his answer is, we don't have a plan yet. You know, maybe that's true. I doubt it. But for now, I'm thinking video games and narcotics. Well, so you not hard to see that in your future, in our future, mm. lots of drugs, right? Because that's how they disable us. Um, people who are addicted to, you know, and on drugs all the time, they're not paying taxes. They're not holding down a job. They're not writing letters to their congressman. They're not running for office. They're not getting in the way. Uh, mm. They're just doing what they're told. They're taking the check, buying the drugs, and staying at home. Well, I think if you had a mic now in front of you, you could just drop it. <laughs> you know, that's if they prevail. Yeah. That's the future that they have in mind for us. Um, but I... I think it's really important for people to know um, that that I think they're losing now. There are signs everywhere that they're yeah. losing. And um, there's one thing they have to have happen in order to prevail. It's the same with like Marxism, communism. There's lots of conditions and similarities that you can find in different countries that have become Marxist or communist. Mm -hmm. But there's only, as Victor Davis Hansen uh told me once there's only one condition that has to exist for marxism and communism to come into being and he said he said and that is for the middle class to be obliterated because the middle class is the physical representation the living definition of hope mm. because if you're poor you can hope to move up. If you're in the middle class, you can hope to improve your, your life more. You know, that is where, that's the absolute embodiment of hope. And what is hope? Hope is about the human spirit, right? It's about hope that lives eternal in your heart and in your mind and that drives you to act. And 
if we believe that the battle is lost and they're so overwhelming and they're so powerful and they're so all around us and so on and so on and so on. What is that really about? Mm. It's about breaking your will to fight. They need you to surrender. They need you to give up hope because there's too many of us. We outnumber them. And if we don't give up, if we don't submit, they have no chance. They just don't want us to know it. They want, that's why, you know, getting hold of the, the media, which is really the megaphone, right? That's what the Nazis did in Nazi Germany. They had to take over the media. They had to, they had to hide all those stories from you of all of the people, black, white, whatever they are, all over the world who are standing up to tyranny, risking everything and fighting for their freedom and fighting for all of our freedom. They don't want you to know their names. They don't want you to hear their stories. They don't want you to see that people like me exist who really don't care what they write. I really don't care. And I'm not crazy. They don't want you to know that because it's the, you know, then you will realize that I am one of literally hundreds of thousands, literally hundreds of thousands. Where can people follow your work? Well, I'm writing a script for a film right now. So um, uh, that film will be coming out, gosh, uh, in the next few weeks. But um, you can find me on Truth Social. You can find me on Locals. Um, and you can find me on Getter. Um, I'm sort of on Rumble. I need to do some uh, videos. I get lots and lots of people writing to me from Rumble. So I really want to build up a presence there. Um, and, uh, if you're, uh, really lucky, you can find me on a beach somewhere, preferably <laughs> South coast, South of Durban. It's winter here now, so you don't, and it's raining, so you don't want to come here now. Well, well at least in, the at least you know, in Cape my Town. Brother, uh, the, the bad thing about Cape Town is, uh, uh, are the girl, the seagulls in the wind, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting memory. <laughs> yeah. The seagulls and the wind. Um, you know, in Durban, we don't have the winter problem that no. you have. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> Laura Logan. Sorry. Sorry. Go finish your sentence. It's summer here now. Yeah, you're in Washington, aren't you? Washington, D.C. No, I live in a small town in Texas. Why My did I think? 7,000 people. I was in D.C. for years. Oh, right. But okay. I'm I'm in the hill country, and you know the crazy part about this place is they have African animals here. <laughs> so, you know, it's not uncommon to see springbok and mm. uh, go to some of the ranches, giraffe, zebra. They'd say zebra, but I always correct it. <laughs> it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure chatting to you. God bless you. You are um, an inspiration, I'm sure, to all all good journalists um and uh it's I'm, I've, I've really enjoyed chatting to you and i am sure we're going to chat again yes we will and i just want to say thank you um to you and also to uh, all those people at home who made me uh what i am you know i really mm. really carry south africa with me every day of my life and i'm so grateful uh for what that country our country has given me 
what you all have given me that identity of ours that collective identity of what it really means mm. to be south african you know um is very special to me and i'm i'm so grateful thank you laura logan thank you for joining me in the trenches <laughs> my name is germ this is germ warfare the battle of ideas If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.